Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, in Rhode Island, public outrage over Blue Cross Blue Shield's plan to charge patients for COVID-19 illnesses. New Hampshire boots out-of-state college students from its vaccine program. And lead contamination revealed at the historic East Chop Lighthouse on Martha's Vineyard stirs debate about cleanup and pollution. It's our regional roundtable. Later in the show, a daughter looks for herself in the archives of her deceased mother's life. It seems obvious, I think, to people outside of this kind of family dynamic that you have a choice over who your family is and you have a choice Mm. over how involved you, you can be or should be in their lives. And that wasn't a choice that I had, I felt, until I went through the process of, of writing. Author Danielle Geller shares a clear-eyed look at her family relationships and search for heritage in her memoir, Dog Flowers. It's our April selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me remotely, Arnie Arneson, host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson from WNHN. Welcome back, Arnie. Good to be with you, Callie. Ted Nisi, politics and business editor and investigative reporter for WPRI. Hello, Ted. Hi, Kelly. Thanks so much for having me back. And George Brennan, news editor for the Martha's Vineyard Times. Welcome, George. Hello, Kelly. Thanks for having me today. Glad to have all of you. And I'm going to start with you, Ted. Um, This Blue Cross Blue Shield plan to charge uh, patients was uh, quite startling and uh, got the attention of the governor and others, and they've reversed their plans to do so. But tell us about it. Yeah, Kelly. So this was a colleague of mine, Alexandra Leslie, uh, forwarded me an email she'd gotten uh, from Blue Cross suggesting that they would, they said they were eliminating 100% coverage for COVID-19 on March 31st. And I I've covered health insurance long enough to scratch my head when I saw that. I said, well, if you're under 100%, they're going to pay for something. So I went to the insurer and they confirmed, uh, you know, they were trying to, I would say, play some semantic games with me. They were pointing out they wouldn't, they would keep covering COVID coverage, treatment for COVID. But the whole point is they have not charged any out-of-pocket costs to individuals who came down with COVID-19 and needed treatment. uh, And now they were going to. And so I put the story out and I have said, I've done a lot of stories that got some feedback. The backlash was instant and voluminous uh, to that story, Uh, you know, kind of across the political spectrum. uh, The governor and the health insurance commissioner quickly came out. A rival health insurer neighborhood came out and said, we're not going to start charging out-of-pocket costs for COVID treatment. And I think along with people just being frustrated with a big insurer, Blue Cross is very dominant in Rhode Island. Um, I think people were frustrated with their explanation and their rationale was that vaccines are available. Uh, But as many people wrote to me, emailed me, tweeted at me, they said, 
they might be theoretically available, but there are not enough appointments, not enough shots, even for people at high risk. So at least if they want to do this, they, they maybe ought to be waiting until there's plenty of vaccine and everyone can get a shot. So, you know, within a couple of days under pressure, Blue Cross reversed it. They're going to continue to waive the out-of-pocket costs. But uh, certainly shows where, you know, how what an unusual environment we've been in, I think, where people were getting a lot of medical treatment and haven't had to pay anything and how getting ending that could be thorny for these insurers. No kidding. Now, I don't want to go down wonky lane, but I have a question to ask that I, I'm sure people listening will think. There was stimulus money to pay for COVID treatment. Some of that I know went to hospitals. Some went to maybe insurers. I don't know because I don't cover this closely. Um, And obviously some were direct to certain patients. So how is it that they would even begin to consider charging? Yeah, it's a great question, actually, Callie. And it's the same thing. I mean, people have asked me, why do I have to give my insurance card uh, to get a COVID test when it's free at the point there? My understanding is that, you know, under the hood, Uh, There's a lot of complexity right now around who's paying for what piece with COVID treatment and care. Um, You know, and I do think people who have insurance, some, you know, traditional insurance pay fors are happening um, for the treatment with the hospitals and everything. Uh, So while there has been a lot of stimulus money and they've made sure, I think, that the uninsured are cared for, I think if someone can sort of go through the traditional payment process, they've still been doing that. So, George, my understanding is that this is really a Rhode Island specific thing that I've not heard that Blue Cross Blue Shield saying that about Massachusetts. Have you? No, I haven't heard that about Massachusetts at all. And and we would hear about it, I think. Yes, we would. Uh, So, Arnie, let me check with you. Have you heard anything similar in New Hampshire? I haven't, but I guess I have a question. What does COVID treatment mean? Because now we're learning about the long haulers, and there's a lot of sort of interesting complications that are coming from COVID. How are they sort of assessing whether this is considered part of COVID treatment? They can't answer that question now. That that part I can't answer, uh, because there are at least two ongoing big studies looking at COVID long haulers. Um, One of them is in New York, and they have not yet been able to identify all of that. They just, I mean, they can tell you some of the similar symptoms, but that's about it. So I think that's going to be a minute before any insurer, or for that matter, any regular person, it would seem to me, it'd be difficult uh, for anybody to say for sure, well, we're not paying for that because that's not COVID, or we are, we must pay for it because it is COVID. Exactly, exactly, exactly. But I'm going to let think... insurance uh, uh, and investigative reporter Ted Nisi weigh in. <laughs> well, I think, I, I think, you know, I think, I think, first of all, it's a great question, Arnie, because that's one of the things I was thinking about. You know, we all have gone through it with health insurance where how your illness gets classified affects how much is covered and what's paid for and what's a deductible and all the rest. And we've been in this very unusual situation where a year ago, COVID was so unknown and there was such a crisis that we kind of threw out normal American policy on healthcare, right? And created, you know, for COVID, it's it's pretty close to sort of a Bernie Sanders type of system where it's free to get tested, free to get a vaccine shot, at least to the individual, free to go to the hospital. Um, for most people, um, I think, though, I know I have read about some folks who wind up with a surprise bill in some places, so I haven't seen that here. Um, so I think as sort of the acute crisis part of COVID hopefully winds down, I do think this is going to create some pretty thorny questions for the health insurers, for policymakers. And I think there's a lot of questions like the one you just asked, Arnie, and other ones that uh, we don't know the answers yet to, and that some of the, as Blue Cross just found out, some of the initial answers they try are not going to fly. 
All right, well, let me move on to a related uh, story in Rhode Island, Ted, and that is Rhode Island no longer is getting an F from Harvard <laughs> uh, for its uh, vaccine rollout program. At first, what we heard about it was like you all were like light years ahead of us. And then this uh, Harvard Kennedy School Belfer Center professor said, mm, not so fast, big F, didn't get it together. But now they've regraded you and you're up to a B. I should say Massachusetts got an F, too, about the same time that Rhode Island did. <laughs> Although I think Mass got three out of four Fs and Round got four out of four Fs. Yeah. So Rhode Island was even worse than Massachusetts. I mean, I was it was depressing in part because they always say that at Harvard, you know, the worst you can do is the old gentleman C. So for Rhode Island uh, <laughs> to get a full set of Fs was really embarrassing. Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, they push back at it down here. But and by the way, there's still plenty of people defend the policy that led to the F, which was they really focused on high density communities, lower income communities where COVID has spread the fastest. And the upside of that, they hoped, would be that we would see fewer COVID cases among the most affected communities. The downside, of course, is that if you're not doing these big mass vaccination sites like West Virginia did from the start, Connecticut did from the start, it was a lot slower to get vaccines out there. And understandably, people are so desperate to get a shot, especially the folks most at risk. Even if there was a policy rationale for it, people didn't like it. And the Harvard thing, I think uh, it was my colleague, Tim White, who asked them to run the numbers after he saw the Massachusetts Fs um, and <laughs> saw the, the bad grade for it. And I do think it sort of crystallized a frustration down here. Um, but yeah, now Rhode Island, Massachusetts, right up there in, I think, the top 10 nationally with Connecticut for vaccinations per capita. And honestly, it seems like not a minute too soon as the variants take off. There were over 500 cases in Rhode Island one day this week, which we hadn't seen uh, since the worst of the winter surge. So, um, you know, hopefully the New England states do better because they've tried to get shots in the arm so quickly. Yeah, I agree. And I think that Rhode Island, in the end, when when all the studies are done, that their approach initially is going to turn out to have been more beneficial than it looked uh, on its face. That's just me predicting with no degree um, in medicine. So (laughs) there you go. Now, Arnie, let's move to New Hampshire, where I don't care how it's rolled out. Out-of-state college students will not be getting the vaccination. Uh, Let's, before you respond to that, let's hear from Governor Sununu. It's for permanent New Hampshire residents. If you're a resident of Colorado, but you're going to school here, no, you cannot get the vaccine. You can go to Colorado and get the vaccine for Colorado residents, but you will not qualify for the vaccine here. So he's pretty firm about that. I noted that there were some other towns that actually want their out-of-state students vaccinated, but it's not going to happen. Well, this is incredibly foolish. First of all, uh, we've just saw the newest numbers coming out of New Hampshire about how many people have now tested positive for COVID. And there's a huge spike in where? Durham, New Hampshire. Oh, my goodness. What's in Durham, New Hampshire, but UNH, okay? Um, the, the, the people in Durham are concerned about this because it's not about out-of-state students not getting a vaccine. It, what does it mean when you have students who are not vaccinated in your community? You don't ask them for their address. You want to know that they've been vaccinated. It's bad health policy. It's bad public policy. It's bad education policy. You want to encourage people to participate here. And again, this is sort of under the umbrella of anything that's out of state. We don't want them to vote here. We don't want them to get vaccinated here. And how easy is it for you to get to back to Colorado in order to get your vaccination? And one of his excuses has been, well, they won't be around for the two-shot vaccine. Well, that may not be the case. 
case. Some kids may be staying for summer school. Some may be interning in the summer. Let them make the decision. What about the J&J? They could get one shot and they're done. So there is a tremendous pushback on this. And as a state that wants to attract out-of-state students and so desperately needs them, it sends all the wrong messages. He's not protecting our state. He's actually putting our state at risk. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how long he clings to that decision. So one follow-up question before I have Ted and George weigh in if they care to, and that is so many states, including Massachusetts, have set their deadline for when the 16 and older can get the vaccine. So that would include everybody. To my knowledge, they haven't said 16 and older except for these people. So have has New Hampshire set its time period for when 16 and older can get the vaccine? And, and even with under that, are they saying still we're not going to let out-of-state college students get vaccinated? Well, he's actually opening it up to, to everyone over the age of 16. I believe it'll all be able to participate by May. But his argument is that they're going to need two shots and they won't be here for the second shot. And they're not our responsibility. And, and I'm going to just say something. We have a fiduciary responsibility to every person, especially someone who's coming in to our campuses at the, in the state of New Hampshire. So, yes, we are opening it up, but still he wants to somehow make sure that they have the right address. Well, you know what? As long as they're going to school here, they have the right address. Everyone who does public health says this is a foolish decision on his part. I don't know who he's playing to, but he's not playing to science and he's not playing to what the medical community really wants. And George, I would think he's not playing to parents either. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that too. You I was going to say students are every bit a part of the uh, community as anybody else. And um, my daughter is a student at Northeastern in Boston. She's a bigger part of the Boston community than she is the Cape and Islands community at this point. And, and so it seems like a really silly decision. We, we did have a little controversy on the island uh, where people are concerned that people are coming from off island to get appointments mm. at Martha's Vineyard Hospital. And what the hospital told us is, look, we're not, we're not looking at uh, where people are coming from when they're making their appointments. If they're eligible, they're eligible and we'll, we'll give them a dose of the vaccine. Well, it seems like whatever you're doing, um, Harvard should sign off on because there were no <laughs> no deaths on the island. It's none. So that's pretty impressive. Well, let me just make one more point, Kelly. 60% of the 15,000 students enrolled at the University of New Hampshire are from out of state. So these people are very important. They pay full freight, if not more, because they're out of staters. They represent more than half of the students that go to our, our state colleges. So again, he's not playing this out. The message is wrong. And c- trust me, the, the college communities are out of their mind because it doesn't protect their residents. How about staff and everybody else as well? That's a whole other conversation. Ted, everybody 16 and older at some point in Rhode Island, they're not excluding students, I take it? Yeah, April 19th, it goes to everyone uh, in Rhode Island. And I did, knowing we were going to talk about this, I checked, I did a little homework. And my understanding is that, you know, college students from out of state, obviously, we have a big population of those in Rhode Island, Brown University and the other schools in Providence, et cetera. Um, They will be eligible. I even, I think the colleges have even floated the idea of being mass vaccination sites once, Mm. you know, more people are eligible who are that age group. Um, because if you think about it, it hasn't really become much of an issue yet, because as far as I understand it, most of the students who are eligible now because of underlying health conditions probably stayed remote because they had the underlying health conditions and didn't want to be on campus at the moment. Um, so I don't think we've really hit 
many college students being eligible in Rhode Island, but we will later in the month. But yeah, as, as, as Callie says, I mean, some of the big outbreaks in Rhode Island last fall were traced back to parties at Providence College. Yeah, and thank you. students are students, right? They're going to get together. I mean, uh, I teach at Wheaton College in Norton and we have to constantly remind them, please don't have parties till next year, you know, yeah. and the students, I have to say, my students have been amazing about it. I mean, they're not going to get to redo this year of college. And I can't believe a good attitude my Wheaton students have had uh, about it all. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is WNHN's Arnie Arneson, WPRI's Ted Nisi, and the Martha's Vineyard Times editor, George Brennan. It's our regional news roundtable. Well, you're stirring up quite a fuss down there, George, around the East Chop Lighthouse and lead contamination. So tell us the story. And oh, by the way, it seems like some of the board members on the Oak Bluffs Board of Health thought it was funny at first. Yeah, a little backstory here. Rich Salzberg, who's a reporter for the Martha's Vineyard Times, has done a lot of work with public records on this. And he uncovered that there was some contamination at West Chop Lighthouse initially because there were a couple of children there who were living in Coast Guard housing who were actually poisoned. And so he started to look at the other lighthouses on the island. And sure enough, he found records that East Chop Lighthouse had an investigation back in 2007, and there was contamination at the time. Nothing done about it. And there's a public park. Uh, Oak Bluffs has a public park that's right around that. Uh, the museum brings tours to East Chop Lighthouse. They're not doing it now, of course, because of COVID. And now they won't do it until there's some remediation there. So Rich brought it to the attention of the local board of health. And initially, they kind of joked about it. Uh, two of the members during a meeting on Zoom were, you know, caught on tape, sort of laughing about, oh, kids don't eat dirt. And so... We wrote an editorial about that, and that sort of caught their attention. And since then, they've had a subsequent meeting where they said, look, um, we made a mistake during that meeting, taking it uh, lightly. We don't take health issues lightly, and um, we're going to redouble our efforts here. There needs to be some signs put up to keep people out of there. We need to lock it up. And we need to get in touch with the Coast Guard and let them know that we want this situation taken care of. So I guess you could say there's some good that came from the fact that they did take it a little lightly. Our, our newspaper took a strong stand about that and caught their attention. And then they took it up again. And now they're, they're really paying attention. And hopefully at some point, the federal government will do the right thing and clean up around that lighthouse, which very popular spot, as you know, uh, for picture taking and sunsets and picnics and kids playing in the ground. And so very important that that's taken care of. Well, uh, I wanted to emphasize that because, as you pointed out, the lighthouses are are treasured. Certainly, I've been to all of them, and I've been to that one. And the East Chop Lighthouse, which is in question now, is more than 100 years old. So there's a lot of multiple layers of lead paint applied over the decades. I guess if you thought about it, that makes sense. Because, But who thought about it? I mean, I, I've everybody spent multiple hours around all of these spaces. But before I get others to weigh in, George... One of the issues could be, I assume the U.S. Coast Guard will pick up the tab for this because that's a 
Coast Guard Lighthouse. But could it become a huge issue if the town or the island somehow has to kick in for this cleanup and and, uh, addressing the pollution? Well, it most definitely would become an issue for the island and the towns. Um, They're already strapped as if they didn't have financial issues previously. You know, COVID has certainly caused a, a problem for them because they don't have the hotel taxes that they would normally have, the meals taxes that they would typically have. So the towns uh, picking up the costs, you know, just doesn't seem doable. You know, the federal government does have to step in and do the right thing as they do at other places where there is contamination. You know, on the Cape at the military base, there's been cleanup of the water there for decades. That's the federal government's responsibility. But it as we all know with government, it moves slowly. Uh, they have done some recent testing. We don't have those results yet. And we'll, we'll see what happens with those and how much they're willing to do mm. uh, and how far they're willing to go. Are they only willing to do what's federal property now, which is right around the lighthouse? Or are they willing to go further into the town park, which would also be their responsibility? No kidding. There are lighthouses in Rhode Island, right, Ted? Yes, there are. We have some beautiful lighthouses here. I actually, I have a soft spot for the Highland Light in Truro on the Cape because that's where I proposed to my wife. So now I'm wondering if I got some lead lead in my knee when I got down on one knee there at, at Truro. But yeah, I mean, I think the lighthouses are, you know, they, they are such a treasure. They are one of the things you can kind of take for granted. You know, we think they're beautiful, but the, you know, the upkeep and especially with, you know, the erosion happening yes. on the seaside, you know, I think, I think, I th- Georgia would know better than me. I think they had to move Highland yes. Lights back at some point, right? Yeah. So yeah. Um, th- th- this just adds to the reasons those really need to be taken, you know, treasured as monuments that need some TLC. Lighthouses in New Hampshire? I don't think so. Right. I don't really have to. We only have 12 miles of coast. Maybe there's yeah. one on Winnipesaukee. Okay. I'm not quite sure. But um, <laughs> let, me, let me ask you a question, though. Where did the lead come from? Is it just lead paint that we're yeah. worried about? Because this this seems like, wow, that that how much paint did they use that there would be this level of contamination? Because I keep hearing that they keep doing the testing, but the Coast Guard would be reluctant to come in and take care of it. But I'm trying to figure out. A hundred years of paint, paint, Arnie. Wow. That's, uh, wow. Uh, that's a lot of paint. Lots a lot of lead paint. I guess so. Yeah. I guess so. I, I mean, my house is over 100 years old. I'm going to go out and start testing my soil. I'm like getting nervous <laughs> here. Everyone. Oh, God. Well, remember, we didn't always think about that. That wasn't an issue. So yeah. oh, uh, know, now we I do know. it. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me is WNHN's Arnie Arneson, WPRI's Ted Nisi and the Martha's Vineyard Times editor, George Brennan. It's our regional news roundtable. All right, let me move on to the federal legislation, Arnie, that um, is proposed by President Biden, uh, which does a number of things. I don't really want to get into all the other details of it, but specific to New Hampshire. Your person says, your your uh, longtime chief election official says, it could mean that New Hampshire is no longer number one primary. All right, so we have the longest-serving Secretary of State in American history, everyone. All right, let me just let me put that out there. And really, the reason he is notorious is that he has been vigilant in keeping New Hampshire's first-in-the-nation presidential primary. He probably should have retired, I will be honest with you. And now that the Republicans have taken control, what do we know? It's called the celebration of voter suppression. And unfortunately, I think our Secretary of State is a little bit of malleable. And he issued a statement the other day about H.R. 1. In his statement condemning H.R. 1 
and that somehow he made a connection between H.R. 1 and its protection of the franchise to somehow hurting our first nation presidential primary status, I started raising some questions about it because in the statement he, he made, he named Nancy Pelosi four times. But not only that, but what does H.R. 1 have to do with the presidential primary? Let me just tell you something. Nothing. Okay. Nothing. Right. Uh, in fact, the Democratic Party chairman was really interesting. This is his statement. It is one thing to vigorously defend each state's authority to disenfranchise voters and allow corruption, but it is absolutely inexcusable to drag the New Hampshire presidential primary into this argument. He goes, it must end now. And what I think is fascinating is, first of all, these are primaries that really are about the party and not about elections that have consequence for states or for going mm -hmm. to Washington or whatever. So they really are a party process, no matter how you look at it, number one. And number two, New Hampshire might lose its first-in-the-nation presidential primary status. Why? Because we are white, because we are rich, we have no diversity in our state, and we don't represent the changing demographic of America. And I think we're already beginning to hear that from the Democratic National Party. They're looking at Iowa, and they're looking at New Hampshire, and saying, you know what, we need to rejigger the, the calendar here because these two states are not representative of who we are and what we need to do going forward. It has nothing, nothing to do with H.R. 1. It's just the fact of who we are. And, and just for people who are wondering, H.R. 1 is the For the People Act. So right. just, just to be clear. All right, well, enough of that. Let's move on <laughs> to back to you, George, which one of my favorite stories about the Suez Canal <laughs> and could a ship get stuck in the Cape Cod Canal. Um, first, let's listen to CNN's Ben Wiedemann reporting the dislodging of the ship in the Suez Canal. It was just over an hour ago that it appeared that the effort that has been going on around the clock since last Tuesday finally succeeded in freeing the entire ship, bringing it back into the middle of that stretch of the Suez Canal, and it is now uh, on its way north. So I, you know, of course, you got water, you got big ships and the Cape. <laughs> this is possible. I love this story. Um, and you found a guy who actually had been through the Suez Canal. So tell us about it. You know, as soon as I I heard about this story. I knew there would be some sort of way to, to localize this. And the Cape Cod Times did a good job with this. Um, Jeanette Hinkle was the uh, the reporter on this. And, you know, we have Mass Maritime there. So there's bound to be someone from there who's uh, captained a ship that's gone through the Suez Canal. And sure enough, uh, she spoke to somebody there who had that experience and also has the experience of going through the Cape Cod Canal. So the long story short is, it eh, probably won't happen and can't happen at the Cape Cod Canal, but anything's possible as, you know, who thought this was going to happen? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and captivate the world. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, we, we see some big ships go through uh, the Cape Cod Canal. Of course, it wouldn't be quite um, as dramatic as the Suez Canal because you're having to go around a whole continent there if you can't get through the Suez Canal. Whereas, with Cape Cod Canal, you only have to go around the Cape instead of uh, bypassing it. So that is dramatic. But and apparently it did happen at one time in World War Two. There was a period of time where a ship did get stuck, uh, ran aground in the canal and they had to close it for a period of time. Uh, so anything's possible, but uh, I don't think we'll ever see anything that dramatic. 
And is there anything that united us all in the, I in loved the last it. few weeks than watching uh, this particular ship um, stuck there? And, you know, we we might have a bad day, but that ship captain, you know, tops anybody else's bad day in the last few weeks. That's for sure. And I, I love the fact, Ted, that uh, one of the, the people who was trained here in New England um, actually had experience going through that canal and the Cape Cod Canal. So he had real life, you know, comparison to make. Yeah, I just I I my I tip my cap to the Cape Cod Times because this this one ricocheted across social media. You know, it was a fun story, an interesting story. They jumped right on it, and uh, yeah, I, you said something, George, and it's so true. I think it's been such a long, intense, exhausting news cycle that every, you could feel. I mean, it was serious, of course. Global trade was affected and everything else, but like at least you know it seemed like nobody was getting hurt. The ship was just stuck. It was a little bit lighthearted. People could have a little fun with it. I think people are so desperate for that after the pandemic. I agree. The thing is that nobody's getting hurt. People were spending millions and millions of dollars an hour losing their opportunity to get through the Suez Canal, number one. (laughs) And let's remember, who builds a massive ship that is longer than the Empire State Building is high? And that's what you have to start asking. In a way, I keep thinking about monopolies. You know, they keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, or the banks are too big to fail. Well, now we have a ship that that turns out to be not too big to get stuck. And how could you not have predicted that it wouldn't get stuck? And that, I think, is the real concern here. And I, I don't know whether they have the same rule that you have at the Cape Cod Canal, because while your canal is only 500 feet wide, you permit vessels up to 825 feet. Well, I wonder what the Suez Canal has. Do they say you can't have a vessel more than the Empire State Building? I'm just wondering <laughs> if they're going to rethink the idea of these massive ships that are now being built because they're quote-unquote unfishing. Uh, except when they get caught stuck in the Suez Canal. Oh, I, I bet they are. I think that's already yeah, happened. Sure so. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm guessing. Well, I love the story anyway. It was great. Uh, let me move on to you, uh, Ted Nisi, where the governor, Dan McKee, who's stepped in after uh, Governor Gina Raimondo moved on to the Biden administration, is nominating Rhode Island, uh, is nominating, I'm sorry, Sabrina Matos to be Rhode Island's lieutenant governor. Let's take a listen to uh, Sabrina Matos responding to that. If I'm confirmed by the Senate, I will be tirelessly working for the residents of Rhode Island. As the first Afro-Latina woman nominated to this post, I'm grateful to the governor's commitment to diversity and inclusion. All right, so Ted, this is a big deal. Absolutely, you can you can just hear in her voice. My wife, who's an anchor here at 12 News, a couple of weeks ago, she was interviewing her and she said, asked her about her experiences in politics. And she said, you know, I always like to remind people, just because I speak with an accent, doesn't mean I think with an accent. And she's just um, a very vivid example of the rise of Latinos and Latinas in Rhode Island politics. Um, just, you know, you see it particularly in and around Providence. Um, you know, the, the current and former mayor of Providence, um, both Latino men, uh, Spina Matos is currently the president of the Providence City Council. Um, and it's also an interesting move by Dan McKee, the new governor who just took over, because in Rhode Island, the governor and lieutenant governor run separately, and mm-hmm. usually they have have a frosty relationship. It just always seems to happen that way. Um, And he has said, partly because he wasn't brought into the fold by Gina Raimondo, he wants to make uh, Sabina Matos much more like a partner in the way Karen Polito is with Charlie Baker. You know, she's always with him at all the COVID press conferences and everything. So it's both interesting to see 
um, how he's going to do that. And then I just think uh, Sabina Matos is just a really vivid example about how Rhode Island politics and the Rhode Island Democratic Party is changing. I remember when Angel Tavares uh, became the first Latino mayor of Providence. That was in 2011. He served until 2015. That made national news. I mean, that was a mm-hmm. big deal. Um, so yeah. it, it is interesting. I mean, you've gone from a Buddy Cianci and David Cicilline to Angel Tavares and Jorge Alorza. And so I think, uh, yeah, I think, you know, I think you're seeing the leadership in high levels of politics start to reflect changes that have already been happening in the community. All right. I want to squeeze in one more story about another person possibly running for office. Here's former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo responding to Fox News host Sean Hannity about a potential 2024 presidential run. Let's say there's a scenario Donald Trump makes a decision he's not going to run in 2024. Would you consider getting in that race? Sean, I'm always up for a good fight. I care deeply about America. You and I have been part of the conservative movement for an awfully long time now. I aim to keep at it. Since you're keeping your first in the nation primary, likely, (laughs) I'm guessing you're going to see Mike Pompeo there pretty soon. I, I'm, well, he's already been to Iowa. He's going to do a fundraiser for a special election in New Hampshire. Uh, there's a great headline for the New York Times. With an eye on 2024, a rarely bashful Pompeo grows more combative. So he's, you know, he's attacking Biden. He's attacking what's happening on the border. He's talking about Israel. He's talking, I mean, there isn't anything. And he will use any excuse to show up in New Hampshire and Iowa because just those locations give him sort of enhanced stature, and therefore the national media will follow him. I mean, if he showed up in Nebraska, nobody would be covering Pompeo. But showing up in Iowa and New Hampshire, then it all of a sudden means that as he's sort of attacking Joe Biden, it's not just he's being critical, it's that he's preparing for 2024. Well, um, who else has been up there? You know, by now you start to see other people. But I thought that former President Trump had it locked down and there were no people that were even going to hint that they might run. I think he's been so invisible since he came off Twitter. I mean, let's be honest, that that was devastating for him. So his a level of visibility, I mean, he may still have a base, but he doesn't have the visibility. And 2024 is a long way off, and you might as well start courting people now. You don't know if someone's going to be alive by 2024. You don't know if they're not going to be in jail by 2024. You're not going to be if they're in bankruptcy by 2024. So I think a lot of Republicans are hoping that there might be some alternative possibilities for Donald Trump, and it may not be running for president. I will say uh, President Trump, former President Trump is about to start his own um, media platform. So he'll be back visible pretty soon. But I guess uh, Pompeo is not going to wait for that. So there you have Absolutely it. Absolutely not. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there because, as always, you three have been insightful and to the point. So I thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Callie. Thanks for having me. Arnie Arneson is host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson from WNHN. Ted Nisi is politics and business editor and investigative reporter for WPRI. And George Brennan is news editor for the Martha's Vineyard Times. Coming up, Danielle Geller's mother was absent for most of her life. She didn't really understand who she was until after her death. In her new memoir, Geller chronicles how her journey to know her mother led her to find herself. Dog Flowers is our April selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm 
Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya, that's Creole for something extra. Danielle Geller's journey to unpack her deceased mother's life began with a suitcase full of the bits and pieces of her life. What she found while sifting through the suitcase's contents is at the core of Geller's memoir, Dog Flowers. The book is Geller's first, and it's our April selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. And author Danielle Geller joins me remotely from Victoria, British Columbia. Welcome to Under the Radar, Danielle. Hi, Kelly. Thanks so much. Uh, I'm very excited to talk about my book with you today. And I'm excited to talk to you about it. So I always like to give the authors an opportunity to describe their own work. I've described it, but but how do you describe it? Yeah, uh, it's a, a memoir that is based on interrogating some documents that, like you said, I, I received from my mother, photographs, uh, diaries, letters between her and her family. And it's about uncovering some truths that were buried and coming to understand my mother uh, in relation with me, but also apart from me. And through that, hoping to, to also strengthen my relationships with my sisters um, as four daughters, but my three sisters. Hmm. When you started to write about um, her life and your life and your family, did you know it was going to be a memoir or were you just, you know, jotting down things to, you know, ponder and, and then it became something else? Yeah, um, I didn't know it was going to be a memoir when I first started writing it. I first started writing it actually as letters to my sister. She um, was serving a warrant in and I guess it's our hometown. I don't know where we where we had grown up for quite a few years. And it was about six months after our mother had passed away and she hadn't made it up to Boston. I was living in Boston at the time to go through her, our mother's things with me. And at, at that time, I was I was just writing her weekly letters. I was writing about our childhood, like everything I could remember growing up. I was writing about some of the things that I was finding in our mother's things. Um, and and about halfway through that process, getting feedback from her, I think I realized, I started to realize that it was becoming a, a memoir. So I try not to give away everything in the book when I do these discussions, but we know at the yeah. outset, I've said, and you've said that your mother is dead when you, when, when we begin reading your memoir and then, you know, what happens happens yeah. after that. I wanted to give our listeners a chance to, to hear your voice on the page. So would you please read for me? Yeah. In the days and weeks after my mother died, I didn't do any of the things a good daughter should do. I didn't write an obituary. I didn't arrange a funeral or memorial service. I tried to call my mother's family, but the only number I could find, the number for my aunt, my mother's sister, was a deadline. I could not afford to bury or cremate my mother, but I was told to submit a notarized letter to the county describing her situation. Include she was homeless and an alcoholic, the caseworker said, implying it would help. The county paid for my mother's cremation, and the crematorium held my mother's ashes while I tried to reach my sister. I wasn't sure what she wanted to do with our mother's ashes. She stopped responding to my calls and my texts and my Facebook messages. In the silence, I scrolled through her Facebook page, largely abandoned except for the few photos she posted over her last year traveling. 
She sits on the sidewalk and holds a clever cardboard sign asking for money. In another, her road dog, Monster, licks her face. She holds her phone at arm's length and squints into the sun with the mountains of Arizona and New Mexico behind her. She shaves her hair into a mohawk and collects new tattoos, three thin lines on her bottom lip and three dots on her chin, the letters D-O-G-S written on the backs of the fingers of her left hand, a lizard on the cartilage of an ear. The ear and the tattoo were later mangled when, drunk or high, she tried to steal a bone from the mouth of a dog with her own teeth. The dog snapped and caught her left ear. With its teeth or its paw, it tore the skin beneath her left eye. The day our mother died, Eileen posted a photo I took of our mother cleaning my kitchen in Pennsylvania from when our mother visited to attend my college graduation. Then my sister posted nothing. When the crematorium grew impatient with my delays, I told them I didn't want my mother's ashes. I couldn't imagine her at rest in an urn on my shelf. Boston was too cold and too dark and too far from the home my mother had made in South Florida. That's my guest, Danielle Geller, reading from her memoir, Dog Flowers. It's her first book, and uh, it's our April selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. So there's a couple themes running um, through your memoir. One are the, the, the family dysfunction related to addiction. Um, and this yeah. is tough stuff, Danielle. Um, it, it, it's amazed me as I was reading it that you were able to be a little bit apart from it. But, of course, you were in it yeah. as you described it. And for me, I think we as readers are just go through so many emotions, particularly if we're readers that are unfamiliar with the impact of addiction. Have you gotten that response? Did you know that this would be, you know, what we readers would take away? It certainly was a concern I had as I was writing the book. One of the the biases or, or stereotypes about Native Americans is that, you know, like we have a problem with with alcoholism, that our our bodies somehow can't can't tolerate it, or that like we're genetically more predisposed towards addiction or alcoholism uh, or substance abuse, which which scientifically, like factually, isn't true. But I I certainly was aware of that stereotype, and I I didn't want to be writing only a story about addiction, but it, you know, writing a, a, a true story about my childhood, I couldn't, I couldn't leave a lot of that out. Um, but I, but I do think that for people who didn't grow up in this, in this kind of environment, you know, I think I have a lot of emotional distance. I've, to, to sort of survive that childhood, I have had to distance myself from a lot of the things that I experienced growing up. And my, you know, my husband didn't have a childhood like that. And he was a, a reader when I was working on some of my, my final drafts of the book and, and having him in the room, reading it and responding to it and, and seeing the places where he had disconnects or where he couldn't really understand. That was really interesting for me. Uh, to be able to understand where maybe I needed a little more context, or maybe mm-hmm. I I I can be a distant person, and I and I do want a reader to be able to interpret things for themselves and make up their own minds about about the people in the book and and what is happening in the book. But yeah, realizing sometimes that maybe people don't have the full experience or or understanding that was 
difficult <laughs> yeah. to navigate. Mm. Yeah. And I hadn't mentioned in this conversation that you are Native American. That's one of the other themes that uh, in the book. Mm. But for me, even if I was aware of the stereotypes around addiction and Native Americans, others may not be. But for me, it was just the family dysfunction and the addiction, which was unfamiliar to me personally. Of course, I've read about it and, you know, know that. Yeah. And what I thought that uh, you, you know, it's very well written, of course, but what was so powerful that I have heard from people who are struggling around addiction issues is that it's so everyday, yeah. that it's mundane in its everydayness. And what you've done in the book is demonstrate through the many relapses that it kind of mirrors the, the daily delusion that a lot of addicts tell themselves and those around them, and that persistent every day really gets through. So I think people will come away with understanding, oh, it's not like a something happens on Tuesday and then maybe something happens next month. You know, it's every, <laughs> it's an everyday struggle. I think that was important for people to understand. Yeah, and in the, in the dailiness or in the everydayness, it it ceases to feel like a problem. It, it becomes the norm. It just warps what you expect of the world and of, of the people around you. Mm -hmm. Now, what the obvious question for so many of us reading this book will be, how could you survive? Because it's pretty intense. So you, you don't yeah. come out unscathed, of course, and we're not telling everything, but essentially you were very different from what was happening to your other close family members. Yeah. And and that was a, a you know, a question I had about, you know, because I grew up with one of my sisters and then I had two half sisters that I didn't grow up with. And, and the sister that I did grow up with, you know, people would say that, that she didn't sort of survive this family or that she didn't make it because she struggled with substance abuse for most of her life. And she's been in and out of the system. I carried that same narrative for a very long time. And I would credit, you know, like my teachers, like I had a lot of very supportive teachers in school. Um, but looking back on it, being older and reflecting back, so did my sister. My sister had a lot of art teachers who were very supportive of, of her creativity. But there was a difference in our family of the way that, that my dad and my grandmother treated my sister um, and the way that they treated me. I was the golden child. I was the one who was going to become a teacher or become a, my dad really wanted me to work for Google. And like, you know, he, he wanted, he wanted me to save the world, which is a very unrealistic expectation to have for a child. But I wanted to in communities, uh, like adult children of, of alcoholics, there's this idea of the perfect daughter. And I wanted to be, I needed to be the perfect daughter. And any, any time my sister stumbled, it just reinforced, you know, like the weight that I mm. felt to, to be the perfect daughter, to be the caretaker, to, to like save or rescue the people in my family that I felt needed saving or rescuing. Um, and she didn't, she didn't have that pressure, but she also didn't have the love and support that I had. Or the expectations, because people can or, rise yeah. to expectations as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with Danielle Geller, author of a new memoir, Dog Flowers. So for the curious, please explain what dog flowers are. Yeah, so when my mother was in the hospital, I flew down to Florida, and she had a, a boyfriend, like an on-and-off boyfriend, and he was holding on to all of her things. And he had taken me outside to her garden, and as we were like out in the garden, like their roommate's dog was sort of like digging around in the dirt. 
And as we were walking back inside, my mom's boyfriend pointed at like the, the muddy paw prints that were sort of like leading through the back door. Um, and he told me that my mom used to call them dog flowers. Because if you look at them, they do look like little blooms. They do. <laughs> yeah. And I never thought about it that way, but that's, yeah. No, so. neither had I. And we, like, we, there's a weird moment when I was taking a, a memoir writing workshop about like nine months after I started working on this book. And I had submitted a chapter, like an early chapter from the memoir to that workshop. And when the workshop leader, uh, Rita Zoe Chin, gave me my manuscript back, she was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Like my dogs, like, like they like walked all over this. Like I'm so they've got muddy popper and so forth. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. Like, that's perfect. Like, that's that's the title of my book. Like, that's their dog flowers. Um, and it felt like this weird, like, hmm. serendipitous moment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Well, I said there were two prominent themes in the book. The other one, of course, is about the connection or the reconnection you found with your Native American heritage. It was something, as you learned from sorting through your mother's stuff, that she had deliberately sort of disconnected you from. But you mm-hmm. you managed to make that connection after her death, connect with some of uh, her relatives and therefore your relatives. And I was particularly uh, taken with this moment about just how much you'd lost after you went back for a ceremony to honor her death. Yeah, of course. After the service, our family returned to my grandmother's place. My grandmother's sisters, who I began to call my grandmothers, as everyone did, took their places in the kitchen, kneading flour and shortening into dough, which they worked with their light hands. They pulled the dough into round tortillas, and when the first tortilla came out of the cast iron pan, My aunt nudged me toward the living room. Help your sisters start serving, she said. We filled the plates with pot roast and potatoes and carrots and corn, egg salad and fruit salad and tortilla wedges. We carried the plates one by one to those seated around the folding tables in the living room. I fixed myself one of the last plates and ate standing in the kitchen. One of my grandmothers touched me lightly on the arm. Your grandfather is going to say a few things, she said. I followed her into the doorway. One of my grandfathers, tall and skinny as a cowboy, wearing boots and jeans and a worn button-down shirt, stood in the middle of the room. He bowed his head and stared at the floor. He spoke in Navajo, and no one translated his words. I closed my eyes and lowered my head and let the unfamiliar sounds watch over me. At one point, my grandmother rested her hands on my shoulder and whispered, he's talking about you. Then she passed a glass of water to my aunt, who carried it to my grandfather, who spoke a few more words and took a sip. My grandmother nudged me forward. Go. My aunt took a sip from the same glass of water, then touched her fingers to her lips and her forehead. When she passed the glass to me, I mimicked her performance, though its significance was lost. I passed the glass to one of my waiting grandmothers and fled to the corner of the room, too embarrassed to ask what had happened or what was said, or what I was expected to do. That's my guest, Danielle Geller. She's the author of a new memoir, Dog Flowers. It's our April selection for Bookmark, the Under the Radar Book Club. So, Danielle, when that happened, and and now you've made the, you've reconnected, how do you feel about that reconnection? And were you mad at your mom for making the original estrangement happen? I was initially pretty mad at my mom that she didn't prioritize connecting me with my family because, you know, my dad's family were from Jersey, but they could also be pretty racist and they just weren't supportive of me and my sister in in healthy ways at all. 
And so I think I was always looking for a sense of family that I thought could fulfill what I thought family should do or should be. And, and it felt like my mom was withholding that. And when I went back to the reservation after she passed away, when I was meeting all of my family, I was struck by how quickly I connected to some, like I I referenced my sister, help your sister start serving in, in the passage I just read, but that's actually my cousin's sister. In Navajo culture, families are arranged a little bit differently and, and relationships are a little bit closer. So all my first cousins are my, my sisters and my brothers and, Mm. you know, all my grandparents, siblings are my grandparents. So my family really opened up (laughs) when I went back to the reservation. I started discovering all these relatives that I had never known. And my sister on on the res felt so much like a sister to me. We immediately connected, Mm. but at the same time, there was so much distance between me and other members of my family. Um, I didn't speak Navajo. People would, would talk sort of above my head in in some respects where I wasn't part of the conversation. I couldn't follow what was happening. And I was, I I found myself frequently like kind of left on my own. I was 26 or 27 uh, at the time. And that's a lot of years to go with like not really knowing about a person or knowing of a person except through the letters that my mother had written about us. And in those letters, she wasn't always truthful. I ask a lot of people who write memoirs, particularly ones that are, you know, tough, as yours is, how reaction from your family? And did anybody try to stop you from writing some of what you did in the book? The, the person I was most worried about the reception of the book with is, is my sister, the, the sister that I grew up with. And she has sort of moved back and forth on, first she wanted it to be fiction, like she didn't want to be any part of it. She'd understand why I was writing it. And, and now we're at a point where she understands why I wrote it and she's incredibly supportive of me. Um, she read an early draft uh, of the book and I'm, hmm. I made some changes sort of talking through things with her and, and recognizing where I didn't know everything about what I was trying to write about. But this, this final draft of the book, she's taking her time to read. And it's because, you know, to a certain extent, she doesn't remember or have access to a lot of the memories that I have access to. And we lost our our dad in November. And mm. I would say she's struggling with it, but she's really just not thinking about it. She's just buried it pretty deep. So there are, for her, I think a lot of unresolved things that she is a new daughter. She's um, working through her sobriety. And so um, some of this stuff is just sort of on on the back burner for her. I'm sorry for your loss because your dad is a big part of this. Book. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. But it is does bring up a question I know that memoir writers confront as well, which is you could have written it as a novel. Why did you think it was important to be very forthcoming in the way that you wrote your piece, which is really about what happened and who it happened to and how you felt about it? You know, I think it, it had to be creative nonfiction for me. It had to be memoir. It had to be sort of like live under the umbrella of like, this is true because people in my family, you know, like my dad, my grandmother and my mother, they spent a big chunk of my life downplaying what I had experienced and telling me what I remembered isn't what I remembered or how I remembered it and telling me untruths about my mother and and about my identity and things that, you know, formed who I thought I was and who I thought I should be. And like how I lived in relation to other people and receiving my mother's 
diaries, like the, those letters, um, reading some of those things that I thought were true, that I've been told weren't, they all fundamentally changed my relationship with my, my family, like everyone in my family, but also with myself and how I understood my role. Like, you know, my, my mother is called a caretaker in the book. And, and I thought I was meant to take care of, for example, my dad and my whole life, you know, my, my family's been shipping him to me to take care of him. And it seems obvious, I think, to people outside of this kind of family dynamic that you have a choice over who your family is and you have a choice Mm -hmm. over how involved you, you can be or should be in their lives. And that wasn't a choice that I had, I felt until I went through the process of, of writing this book. So Danielle, a question I ask all of my authors, what do you want readers to take away? One is that like, you do have a choice in, in family Um, And and that's something actually my my editor, Nicole Counts, helped me realize is I was writing around it. But like that, that really is, I think, one of the the main threads of the book. And that, you know, like we talk a lot about forgiveness. And I I grew up Catholic. I grew up very religious. And even though my dad wasn't, he still would always, you know, when he when he was drunk, when he had hurt me, when he realized it, um, he and my mom both would ask me for forgiveness. Like, do you forgive Mm. me? Uh, do you, and do you forgive me for the way I treated you? Do you forgive me for, you know, I grew up with my grandmother, not raising you for leaving you, um, for all these hurts. And for a long time, I I believed or thought or bought into the idea that like forgiveness, um, can set you free from some of that hurt or that pain. And, and it's only one step. Like you can forgive, you can forgive a person, but that doesn't necessarily change or affect like what they will do in the future. And both of my parents and and my grandmother, yeah, a bunch of people (laughs) would take that forgiveness and say, okay, well, I'm forgiven. I can do it again. I don't have to change anything about my behavior. My stepmom, Fran, used to say like, don't take my kindness for a weakness. And I I love that about her. And that is is what I am trying to cultivate. Like some some, some Mm -hmm. inner strength, (laughs) standing up for myself, (laughs) creating boundaries. Well, thank you very much for joining me, Danielle. Thank you. It's been yeah, great to talk. Danielle Geller is the author of a new memoir, Dog Flowers. It's our April selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. It's available in bookstores and online now. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at gbh.org news, Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH. Produced by Wes Martin and engineered by Dave Goodman. Angela Yang is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.